Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Visionaries. This is Lorna Liana, host of Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. One of the most powerful gifts that visionary medicines offer us is the ability to think outside of the box. There is a reason why microdosing LSD has become the new bulletproof coffee in Silicon Valley, and why increasing numbers of entrepreneurs are being drawn to the ayahuasca experience. Ayahuasca and entrepreneurship is a topic I love exploring, given that it was my experience in the Brazilian Amazon that set me on a path of mastering emerging internet technologies and led to my career as an internet marketer and new media strategist. In 2004, as I spent four months in Acre, Brazil, drinking ayahuasca with the Indians and daime with the different Santo daime churches, I received a mandate from the forest to leverage emerging technologies to preserve indigenous traditions so that ancient wisdom can benefit the modern world and technology can empower indigenous people. The first part of that mission I've explored and continue to explore deeply. The second part of this mission, empowering indigenous people with technology, is something that I have not yet accomplished but I look towards entrepreneurs whose work I admire to inspire me on how I might accomplish the same. Our guest today is Mark Plotkin, who is a Harvard-trained ethnobotanist, social entrepreneur, and shaman's apprentice, whose work I hope to model in my own way. You can discover more about Mark and his organization, Amazon Conservation Team, by visiting the show notes at entheonation.com slash 28. If you stick around for the very end of this episode, I will share with you a psychedelic track by Ecuadorian artist Nicola Cruz that I've been listening to in an OCD kind of way. If you like hearing from these inspiring visionaries more often, please consider becoming a patron of Entheonation. One of the reasons why this podcast went dormant for nearly two years was because of the tremendous amount of work it takes to produce this show and all of it being self-funded. Everyone in the production of this show gets paid for this, except me, and each episode involves many hours of research and scripting. This podcast is a labor of love and a gift to the community. The Entheonation podcast does not generate advertising clicks or receive corporate sponsorship support. So if you love this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash entheonation. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, and consider making a monthly pledge. Plus, we offer loads of rewards for each pledge level, so check it out. Are you ready to join the evolution? 
Sign up for our newsletter and receive our free guide to navigating visionary states, along with eight email lessons on how you can harness the power of your sacred visions. As a VIP member of Entheo Nation, you'll receive invitations to join life-transforming retreats and mind-expanding programs. Just go to entheonation.com slash iTunes to join the tribe and receive your free gifts today. I'm so pleased to introduce a social entrepreneur who I've admired for years for his work helping Indigenous people leverage emerging technologies for Amazon conservation and cultural preservation. His name is Mark Plotkin. Mark is an ethnobotanist and president of the Amazon Conservation Team. He has worked and traveled from Mexico to Argentina, but focuses his fieldwork in the northern Amazon. His recent TED Talk on the uncontacted tribes of the Amazon has garnered well over a million views. He is also a 2007 Skoll Award recipient and the author of the books Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice and Medicine Quest. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Lorna, great to be here. So I'd love to ask you and take you back to your original inspiration. What compelled you to start your organization, Amazon Conservation Team? Well, Lorna, when I got in the business 30 years ago, there were organizations like World Wildlife Fund, where I work, that were all about protecting the rainforest. And then there were groups like Cultural Survival, Survival International. They were about protecting indigenous peoples, but they didn't talk to each other. And I saw a real opportunity, being of something of an entrepreneurial bent, of the missing space in between, which is what we call biocultural conservation. In other words, protecting indigenous cultures and protecting rainforests, because really, I don't think you can have one flourishing without the other. So tell me about some of your current initiatives over at ACT. Well, one of the most exciting initiatives currently underway is compiling what we're calling a shamanic encyclopedia. Uh, As you know, I've been working with the Trio Indians in the Northeast Amazon for three decades, actually a little bit more, and I have been collecting the information on the names of all the medicinal plants, the names of all the animals, the calls of the animals, and so what we want to do is work with them to create an encyclopedia of all their natural history knowledge, and they are already using the information we've compiled to create textbooks in their language. So it's already yielding uh, important results. That is fantastic. You know, I was always a really big fan of your work using GPS mapping to help the tribes be able to map their ancestral lands. And that was a really exciting project that I followed for some time. So that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, you were a recipient of the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship. And, you know, what I see with your work using these disruptive emerging technologies for social innovation is an example of social innovation, social entrepreneurship. So I'm curious to know, uh, given that ACT is a nonprofit organization, what does it mean to you to be a social entrepreneur on the nonprofit side of the fence? 
Well, it's kind of funny, Lorna, because the way people seem to think these days is entrepreneurship is the cornerstone of much of our capitalist society. And social entrepreneurship are a bunch of oddballs like you and me that do all this stuff without the profit motive being the primary driving force. But think about it. What came first, entrepreneurship or social entrepreneurship? You know, the guy who figured out how to make fire uh, didn't launch an IPO to make money off it, right? So people were finding solutions to problems long before there was a book to be made. So the reason I'm telling you this is I think social entrepreneurship, I mean, I know social entrepreneurship was invented, so to speak, long before entrepreneurship. And a lot of people don't get that, that entrepreneurship really is an offshoot of what we call social entrepreneurship. So what would you say is the secret to using disruptive technologies like Google Maps and GPS mapping to solve an urgent problem and to serve people who have an urgent need? So, you know, for example, I know a lot of social entrepreneurs, you know, really want to figure out what type of creative technology solutions can be used to address these problems. But where do you begin? How did you identify GPS mapping and Google Maps as a great way to then empower the indigenous peoples to create these maps that they could then use to, you know, argue about their land rights in courts, for example, in, in Brazil? Well, the answer is two words, Bruce Lee. The best line in Enter the Dragon is the art of fighting without fighting. Now, more land has been claimed with maps than with bullets and swords. So we wanted to change the landscape of power by giving the Indians better maps than the loggers, the miners, and the government had. So when the chief of the trios came to me and said, look, we need a map of our lands if we're ever going to get title, I said, that's great. And he said, will you help us? And I said, of course. And he said, so you'll make the maps. And I said, no. And he said, but I thought you said you'd help us. And I said, I will. And he said, so ACT will make the maps. And I said, we won't. And he said, wait a minute, I'm confused. I said, look, we are going to help you. Yes, but we're not going to make the maps. No, you're going to make the maps and we're going to train you how to make the maps. The answer being that instead of doing it for them, Uh, or even doing it with them, we train them to do it. So our role, I think, uh, is as catalysts, trainers, encouragers, funders from time to time, rather than saying, we're going to do it and give it to you, whether it's making a map, whether it's building a roundhouse to do their sacred dances. So it wasn't my idea to to start making maps. It was response to uh, a request from the chief. And Lorna, as you know, no matter what you try and do as a do-gooder, it's never easy. You think you want to help the women? Well, you have to worry about infant mortality. You want to worry about infant mortality? You got to worry about water quality. You want to worry about water quality? You got to worry about land rights. So all these do-gooder things are interconnected. And so what we like to say when we're asked about these types of social uh, entrepreneurship approaches is it's the marriage of ancient shamanic wisdom and 21st century technology. I think you're one of the seven people that bought my second book, Medicine Quest. And (laughs) (laughs) and my mother wanted a free copy. But the point I'm making there is it's not the medicine man versus the microchip. It's both of them working together. It's not this idea that Indians have all the answers. They don't. Uh, Nor is it the idea that Silicon Valley has all the answers, which even though they think they do, they don't. It's finding ways to get them to work together. That's the sweet spot in between. Are you a spiritual seeker intrigued by the insight, healing, and transformation that visionary medicines offer? Do you feel called to work with sacred plant medicines, but don't know how to begin, let alone where to find a qualified shaman? 
Or perhaps you might have had a life-changing experience at an ayahuasca retreat center in Peru and are confused about how to integrate all your cosmic downloads with your day-to-day life back home. And what would really help with that journey is the support of a community of people who work with visionary medicines on a regular basis. If this sounds like you, check out Spiritual Evolution with Sacred Plant Medicines, an online program designed to help you receive the highest transformation. Just go to entheonation.com spiritual to view the course curriculum and receive a special 10% discount just for being a podcast listener. Simply apply the coupon code ENTHEO10, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-10, to redeem your 10% discount today. Okay, so you had this request from the trio chief, and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to teach you guys how to make the maps. Now, right. if I were to imagine, you know, some of the villages that I visited in the Amazon, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're rustic huts in the middle of the jungle. So True. what kind of challenges did you run into in terms of teaching them how to use this technology, how to use Google Maps, how to, you know, navigate the internet, how to use these devices? Uh, bring us back to those days. Well, first of all, there's leaders in any culture, okay? A lot of people don't get that. And part of your job in working with people uh, from another culture, whether it's French wine peasants or whether it's Indians where you were in Acre in Brazil, it's finding who those leaders are. And so when we said, we're going to teach what a map is, remember, many of these guys had never seen a map. So we weren't starting from ground zero. We're starting from ground less than zero. We showed them what a map was. Okay, they got that. We took some aerial photographs of the landscape. There was no Google Earth. This is 15 years ago, ancient history. And we said, okay, what do you call these rivers? Well, who do they have to go to to get the names of the more obscure rivers and streams were the old people, grandpa and grandma. And that immediately had a revolutionary effect because the young guys were all walking around in T-shirts and Michael Jordan gym shorts, and the old guys were walking around in breech cloths. But all of a sudden, they have to ask these old guys who they considered kind of, you know, old-fashioned and not very bright. They didn't know how to read and write. Turns out these are the encyclopedias of the culture. So we immediately connected the younger generation with the older generation. That was a totally unforeseen positive outcome. Once people sort of grokked the idea of what a map was and how to get the information, they started writing it down. We wouldn't do it for them. Then they started asking them other questions. Well, why do we call this waterfall by this name? Well, isn't that where the the tapers breed? And so all this information came pouring out, much richer than we ever expected. And so we ended up creating an ethno-history, not just a map, because in the old days, you know, a map was a map was a map. I mean, when I was growing up, you'd buy a map of the Soviet Union. You'd never have to buy another one because that was never going to change. Well, there's stuff on Google Maps that wasn't there when we started this conversation 10 minutes ago. So maps are living, breathing organisms now in a way they really weren't before. And the idea, again, is not to give these guys a skill set which they use once and walk away from. It's to give them a skill set which they can use and use and use again. Mm. So I'm curious to know, since um, there is a lot of fascination around disruptive technologies in the Mm -hmm. world of social innovation, Mm -hmm. what would you suggest that other entrepreneurs can do to discover and apply these technologies for positive change? Well, I always think it's hard to ask people, you know, how to explain how they do what they did or what great discovery they made, because obviously they're not objective. 
But I will say this, that what we're about here at the Amazon conservation team is changing the landscape of power. So it wasn't about fighting with the government. It wasn't about fighting with the military. It wasn't about fighting with the Brazilian gold miners. It was about equipping these guys to essentially seize control of their cultural and environmental destiny in ways they couldn't before. And so to go back to the initial answer to your question, you know, we didn't set out to map the Amazon. We didn't set out to teach Indians how to use technology technology, uh, what we did set out to do was to give these guys a level playing field or even an advantage on that playing field over the people who wanted to take advantage of them in many cases. So we were smart, uh, but as is important, we were lucky. And also, you know, we weren't a mapping organization, so we had to learn to do it ourselves. It's not like we had this all down and they just had to ask us. Uh, we had to be open. We had to know who to go to, and we had to be willing to learn and change. That's essential. Now, it isn't easy being the lone pioneer of something that has never been done before. So I'm curious to know, Mark, what keeps you going? Where do you get your entrepreneurial grit from? Well, I'm, I'm stubborn and I'm idealistic. And both of which have got me into trouble, but it hasn't changed me. You know, I got a few dents in my fenders. I mean, who doesn't? But I keep going because I, I think of this as sort of the, the spiritual boomerang. And you know this, Lorna, as a fellow do-gooder. The more you try and help other people, the more it comes back to you. So you could argue that social entrepreneurs, uh, in many cases, are quite selfish. They're doing it because they know it benefits them. And it benefits them in a big way. It doesn't benefit them like, wow, if I set out to make this map, if I set out to do this solar energy project, it's going to put money in my pocket. Uh, that shouldn't be the aim. I mean, that's not what social entrepreneurs do. But I want to be living on a planet that's not baked by climate change. I want to be living on a planet where there's plenty of oxygen and polar ice caps and elephants and hippos and shamans, all those things that are really threatened through stupidity and greed. Mm, that's a really good point. I mean, I know because I speak to many entrepreneurs that there is this drive to really make a lasting positive impact in the world. But what I find defines the successful entrepreneurs from the ones that seem to really struggle is that connection to that deep personal desire as to why they are building the companies that they are trying to build. And so, you know, there are so many people that really want to change the world, but so few are actually able to build an organization, create solutions that are truly scalable, that leave a lasting positive legacy long beyond their own lives. So I'm curious to know, Mark, being surrounded by social entrepreneurs like you are in the world of, you know, Skoll and some of the other and the world of TED, for example, what do you see as some of the necessary characteristics for impact and success, especially in social entrepreneurship? Because as you know, it's not just about the money. Well, drive and passion are absolutely fundamental, but that's not the only thing. You know, I, the, the, perhaps the stupidest uh, documentary ever made is one about lottery winners, where they interview all these lottery winners, and uh, they all say, well, I just thought positive thoughts. Well, that's great, except they didn't interview the 9 billion people who bought the tickets and didn't win the lottery. Some of those guys thought positive thoughts as well. So again, this goes back to my point about, you know, asking somebody why they've succeeded at something isn't always the best answer to the question, isn't always the best source to guess why that happens. But again, passion and smarts and education and good connections 
are all fundamental, but you also have to be in the right place at the right time. You also have to be lucky. You also have to have a solution which works. You also have to be there when that solution is applicable. Because 30 years ago, you know, nobody cared about global climate change. Uh, nobody knew about it. So a, a solution to that 30 years ago would have been laughed at or more likely ignored. Now people are scrambling for it. So timing is, has got to be part of the equation as well. Mm. So I'd love for you to bring us to a time in your life where you felt like giving up, but you didn't and you made that breakthrough. Tell well, us I'll a tell story. You, that I'll tell you exactly when. Okay. After 9-11, everybody was shell-shocked. There was no charity going on. People were worried what was coming next. And we almost had to close the door. We had no money in the bank. We're a small entrepreneurial organization. We can turn on a dime, but it also means we're not sitting on billions of dollars in the bank. So we ran out of money. And Paul Newman, who was one of our supporters, I never met the guy, but he, he sent us money every year, announced that as a New Yorker, all of his money would be going for New York charities because New York had suffered the most grievous blows in the 9-11 attacks. And I called Susan Sarandon, who was on our board at the time, and I said, Sue, we're going to have to close the doors unless Paul makes an exception in our case. And she said, I don't know. That's not what he said he'd do. And she made the call and we got the check. And we're still in business. So kind of an odd situation to have to talk to movie stars to keep a, a charity going. But that's what it took. And that was really the lowest point in the 20-year history of the Amazon conservation team. Have you ever been in the field and felt your life being threatened? Oh, absolutely. I was in Peru in 1980 in the Peruvian Amazon. The gold rush was just getting started. And I was trying to get up river to work with this famous shaman. And I couldn't find anybody to take me up river. There was no regularly scheduled uh, boat traffic. And finally, at the end of the day, it was hot. I was in the sun. This guy came up to me and said, I'll take you up river. And I thought, great, this is it. And there was a gleam in his eye, which said to me, don't go. And I was sure that if I'd have gone around the bend with him, he'd have stuck a knife in my back, and that would have been the end of the story. So I have no proof of that, and maybe this guy would have taken me to the greatest shaman of all, but sometimes you got to trust your instincts, and I knew that there were bad times ahead if I trusted this man, and I didn't. Mm. It's so important to trust your intuition because there's. I, I believe that everyone has an inner compass, and if there's some type of nagging sensation that is telling you to not do something, to not, you know, follow a path or get in somebody's car, it's really good to heed that. Because I can say for myself that whenever I have ignored that intuition and decided to go on logic based on my desired outcome that I wanted to achieve, it's always worked out badly for me. So indeed, it may not be possible to know, but I'm glad you did that, Mark. There's a tribe on the Suriname-Brazil border called the Wayanas that I've been working with for a very long time. And they have a very interesting uh, view of shamanism and this idea of trusting your instincts. We tend to think of shamanism as learning these abilities to see other things, to use plants, whatever. The Wayanas say that's not the case, that we're all born with the ability to be shamans. We're all born with the ability to see into the next dimension. And being a shaman means learning to take the blindfold off. 
so that we have these abilities that we tend to dismiss. We've all had a dream about somebody we haven't seen since third grade, and that person showed up uh, on the bus or the plane in the seat in front of us the next day. We're taught to dismiss that as, oh, that's just uh, coincidence. Uh, that was just lucky. But it happens to all of us. The Wyanas would say, no, that's not luck. That's your sixth sense struggling to get through. And learning to be a shaman means learning to cultivate that sixth sense rather than dismissing it, as we're taught in Western culture. Hey there, visionary. We really need your help. Entheonation is on a mission to raise public awareness of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics and visionary plant medicines. We do this by creating consciousness-raising content, which we give to the public for free. And this costs money. That's why I'm asking you to play an active part in the psychedelic renaissance by supporting Entheonation on Patreon. Your patronage allows us to create more podcasts, interview more experts, research and write in-depth articles, produce videos, and offer unique educational products for visionaries just like you. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash entheonation. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash entheonation. And browse our mind-expanding rewards and choose your monthly pledge. Take a stand for cognitive liberty and spiritual freedom by becoming an Entheonation patron today. What do you think it means to be a modern shaman? Well, that's not my uh, area of expertise because I work with the traditional ones. And I'm, I try not to be a shamanic snob. So when people tell me they're ayahuasca shamans because they went to Esalen and, and drank the <laughs> sacred drink for two days naked in the hot tub, I have trouble taking that seriously. But, uh, but I you see know, you clearly, as kind of a modern shaman because you work with the traditional shamans, but then you're out in the the you know modern world dealing with technologies dealing with corrupt officials you know trying to counteract powerful commercial interests that would love to see you guys dead and the very people that you might help uh, might be trying to help have strong pressure even to sell out so you know i know this from you know some of the folks that i um connected to at an amazon watch where they've been you know struggling to to fight chevron all these years in ecuador and yet some of the indigenous leaders you know, they, they might sell out to the oil company because the economic pressures are so high. So, you know, how do you navigate that world? And does being somewhat of a, a modern shaman help with that? Well, I'm still learning, you know, I don't have all the answers. Corruption is part of the human condition. You got to remember, I grew up in Louisiana, so corruption is no news to me. And the idea that you may have indigenous leaders corrupted in the Amazon, you may have political leaders corrupted in the Amazon, hey, that happens here too. So again, I think a lot of it comes back to trusting your instincts. A lot of it comes back to being prepared. A lot of it comes back to being flexible. A lot of it comes back to being pigheaded. So there's no easy recipe here. So with your work with these traditional shamans, do you have a sense that there is another world that exists beyond what we know to be our physical reality? Do you, have you had experiences with the spirit world? And do you believe that spirits have a influence on our lives? 
That's a very difficult question. I think anybody who dismisses that out of hand is, is pretty foolish. As a scientist, I can't prove it, but I've certainly seen stuff that I couldn't explain through the prism of Western understanding and science. So, you know, there's that great quote from Carl Jung where he says something like, I don't indulge in the, in the fashionable practice of dismissing something just because I can't explain it. Look, we couldn't explain how aspirin worked for hundreds of years, but it didn't mean we didn't take it when we had a headache. So that's a very simple way of saying if something works and you don't understand the process, are you going to ignore it or throw it away? Uh, you'd be foolish to do so. But by the same token, as a, as a scientist, I am interested in the way things work. And I'll tell you a story. I, I was in the Amazon a couple of years ago with one of my favorite shamans. And he looked at this woman who'd been suffering from insomnia for years, uh, cured her in, in, in three hours. Uh, this is an affliction she'd had for decades. And when I asked him how he did it, he said, I looked in her eyes. Now, the science of iridology and looking in somebody's irises, you know, certainly goes back to ancient Egypt and, and before. Now, as a scientist, I think you could probably learn to look into somebody's eyes and see, are they sleeping well? Are they have a good life? Are they getting enough sex? Are they stressed out? But I then asked him to show me how he did this. He looked in this woman's eyes, another woman, and he said, she's fine, uh, but her husband has bad knees. Now, she was sitting right there in front of her. Her husband was in Boulder, Colorado, and we were on an island outside of Manaus, Brazil. So I checked it out with her husband months later, and he did have bad knees. Can I explain that? No way. Can I dismiss this man as somebody who can do stuff I don't understand? Absolutely not. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about what your day-to-day -day life looks like in the field. Well, in the field, as you know, it's hot. So you want to get up early before the sun gets going and get your behind in the bush before it gets too hot. You're walking through the forest with the shamans. You're looking for plants, telling stories, having a good laugh. And then around two or three, the, the heat penetrates the forest canopy. And these guys want to get home. You get back, you jump in the river, press your plants, have a nice siesta, wait till it cools off, get back to telling stories and going back to the plants. A lot of ethnobotany is just being there. If you want to study how people use plants, you know, as reductionist, we like to get there and say, I don't want to hear about the mumbo jumbo and the two-headed invisible black jaguar. Just give me the cure for diabetes. But that's considered rude and it will either uh, engender no answer or the wrong answer. Spending a lot of time living with them, eating with them, fishing with them, hunting with them, bathing with them is a way to really uh, win friends, influence people, and get some of the answers. Mm, I love that. Okay, so we're about to wrap up this interview. I want to leave you with my last favorite two questions. Um, question, last question, uh, number one. What advice do you have for social entrepreneurs who want to follow in your footsteps working with indigenous peoples on difficult issues and using technologies as part of that solution? Well, number one is to go there and do it. You know, you can study it all on the web, but until you're there, you know, people like you and me, we go there and we fall in love. A lot of people go there and they go, it's hot. I don't want to go to the bathroom in a hole in the forest. Uh, <laughs> there's itchy. mosquitoes. Yeah, sleeping in a hammock, you know. So it, it can be overly romantic to people who haven't tried it and haven't tried the downside. So what I suggest to people, go there, uh, join the Peace Corps, go with the School for Field Studies, Earthwatch, and if you like it, sp spin off on your own. But you got to get there and you got to check it out. Whether it's working with the Navajo in Arizona or working with the trio in Suriname, there's no substitute for experience. 
Okay, great. So last question number two, what do you think is the most effective way to change the world? The most effective way to change the world, prepare yourself well, don't give up. You're going to get knocked on your ass, get up, dust yourself off and go at it again, because that is the way the change happens. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your experience with us, Mark. How can we best stay in touch with you and the work of Amazon Conservation Team? The easiest way is through amazonteam.org, our, our website, or follow me on Twitter, hashtag DocMarkPlotkin. I'm easy to find on the web, and it's easy to keep track of me. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark, and you have amazing adventures. Until the next time we meet. I look forward to that, Lorna. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining this powerful interview on how you can change the world through disruptive technology and social innovation. One of the things that really struck a chord for me with this conversation is the importance of spending the time to build solid relationships based on trust with the people that you are wanting to help, especially if you are working with indigenous tribes in the Amazon. The worst way for a Westerner to approach helping the indigenous is as a white savior, offering solutions with little understanding of the reality of their lives. The only way to truly understand how their lives are is spending time in the forest and going back to visit their villages year after year. And perhaps in this exploration, you will discover that we need indigenous wisdom to heal us and to help us awaken from this deadly trance that is fueling the destruction of our planet. And now it's time for Medicine Music for the Soul. I'm so excited to introduce to you the music of Nicola Cruz. Nicola Cruz's music invokes the landscapes and rituals of his homeland, Ecuador, a country that is home both to the Andes Mountains and the Amazon jungle. His music is an exploration of ancient mythologies and folkloric traditions in a modern setting. This particular track is called Folia de Jorema, and is this is the Shiki Shiki Dragonfruit remix. You can find the EP on iTunes with the original track and three juicy remixes. We've included a Bandcamp link to the original track, which you can find in the show notes at entheonation.com slash 28.
exaltar essa tal de saudade.